from Cape Town. This is the Voice of the Cape, 91.3 FM. So, to Lelfiat. Voice of the Millennials. With Yasin Kipi. Igniting the youth. Assalamu alaikum, welcome to the voice of the millennials with myself Yasin Kippi. Uh, it's another segment of From the Mind of a Muslim Millennial, you know, the outlook in life from ac- across the world. And uh, today we are quite privileged, I'm quite honored to be able to speak to uh, Fahim Ayman Farouk. That's your full name, isn't it? So, Assalamu alaikum. MashaAllah, wow, you got my full name. That's fantastic. Now you've exposed me to the world. Well, the thing is, you already exposed because Google's uh, your sheikh when it comes to information, right? Everyone's sheikh. That's true. Yeah. That's absolutely true. But you've done it, you've done it in a much classier way with your beautiful voice, mashallah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and no, I've been told to be considered a professional spike just because I use Google. Uh, so I know things about people that they don't even know about themselves after many years. Allah, this one scene in the original Lion King, you know that, the very first one? The yeah, well, no, I was, I was there when, when uh, Simba got raised as well. Cause I live yes, mashallah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Simba, he looks into the water because the, the baboon is telling him, hey, look, you want to see Mufasa, you look into the water. And then he finds out who he is. But mm. in, in our case, you don't need any of that mystical stuff. You just need to consult Sidi Yassin. He'll tell you who you are. <laughs> That's uh, Yeah, because if, if you know yourself, then you know God, right? The, the famous saying. Absolutely. But this is part of what we want to speak about today because of, of your work, um, you know, founder and CEO of an organization called Focus 180. And because you focus on focusing, isn't that so? Tell us about Focus 180. Alhamdulillah. Well, first of all, Jazakumallah Khairun. Uh, it's my pleasure and honor to be here. And I really appreciate uh, your invitation. Uh, I really like the work that you're doing, especially because you are uh, providing Muslims around the world an opportunity to connect on issues that are absolutely essential. And from within an orthodox, traditional lens, um, you know, there are so many podcasts today and so many radio shows today that analyze different kinds of socioeconomic and sociopolitical issues, but they don't necessarily do it from within an orthodox traditional lens. So this is particularly valuable. So mashallah. Focus 180 is uh, a holistic platform and one that I've been working on for the past seven years. Although when I initially began, it wasn't called Focus 180. That uh, the current form and even the name evolved over time and it's designed to meet the individual and group needs of the 21st century personality so we have a comprehensive program and set of set of services that tackles the modern day juggernaut of career education and family and we also have programming for at-risk demographics that are stifled by socioeconomic and political conditions for example uh, youth growing up within poverty we emphasize the comprehensive nature of health, and we fuse fundamental mixed martial arts training, MMA, strength and conditioning, rehabilitation and trauma clinics, and psychosocial competence training to offer a complete formula for personal growth. Now, whether your goals are isolated or you you also come in with a holistic mindset, we have something for you. And our aim is primarily focused on young millennial Muslim males. But we do have services for females as well, for the sisters. However, our, our greatest focus is predominantly on males. And there's a reason for that, which we will, we will get to. So a lot of people, when they find out about Focus 180, they, 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 they want to understand so many aspects of it. For example, they want to know why is it called Focus 180? They want to understand why is there this emphasis on the needs of young males, Muslim males in particular. And I I initially begin by simply saying Focus 180 at its core, it simply seeks to unite people from a broad range of demographics and align them under the common psychosocial, 
health and fitness goals we all have. Many people are living with crippling daily dysfunctions today. And this is due to the wide range of societal and, and environmental problems that are shaping their lives. And we were inspired to launch this platform through increased awareness of these challenges within our circles and wider communities. And when I say we, um, I'm primarily speaking uh, about myself and those who, have, who, who really assisted me in shaping my vision, um, gave me feedback, or even actually uh, helped me uh, form the, the bedrock of my services. But it's been primarily a indiv- individually led and focused initiative by, by myself. Um, others have assisted, and now I have a team. But throughout the, the vast majority of the time that Focus 180 has existed, it's primarily been me uh, defining it and setting up the services. So I, through all these experiences and through all of these interactions with people in my community and within wider communities that I, I became uh, connected with, I realized that these are common problems, and I want everyone to live functional lifestyles. I wanted myself to, and I still want to, and I want this for everyone else. As the hadith says, a believer loves for others what they love for themselves. Now, social problems, they require social solutions, and few platforms realize this. And that's the case within you know, psychotherapeutic platforms, within the fitness industry, And even politically, many seek individualistic programs, and these fail to address the root cause of modern life's comprehensive problems. So to address the challenges of of, uh, modernity, to address the problems of modernity, we have devoted ourselves to the long-term self-actualization concept of the fitra and polymath. We all know that fitra you know, here refers to in Arabic, the predisposed and primordial and orderly human nature. And polymath simply means a well-rounded, well-developed human being who has uh, sought to master multiple areas of knowledge. So I chose these concepts because they refer to the, the development of a human being and an unearthing of deep existing capacities through a conjunction of improvements in knowledge, health, fitness, relationships, and finally, sound community activism. So this gets us to why I focus on males, both boys and men, primarily, and and their relationships in particular in an age where society increasingly fails to guide their development soundly. The concepts of Rajula and Fatua are cornerstones in our work with males. And, you know, when people at first think about this, they believe that, okay, you know, this is, this is kind of just a, a guy-only thing. But the, the further you delve into it, you start to realize that, in fact, this is very much connected with the plight of and overall condition of uh, girls and women. Uh, and for that reason, a lot of uh, sisters will refer their male family members to me. Um, you know, women and girls depend on the condition of boys and men and, and vice versa. And while I have, I have programs such as you know, nutrition coaching and remote fitness plans, um, remote uh, psychosocial competence plans for, for uh, women and females too, those are really just supplementary and complementary. Can you give us some examples in practical terms of some of the challenges that uh, young Muslim males are facing uh, currently? Absolutely, absolutely. So the first uh, and most important point to understand so that we have the correct lens through which we can understand uh, and interpret what I'm about to say is that men's issues are women's issues and women's issues are men's issues. In Islam, we see this to be the case, right? Uh, we, are, we are one ummah and the condition of men is going to affect the condition of women and vice versa. So when we understand this point, everything else will fall into place, inshallah. Now, if we look at North, the North American condition, of millennial Muslim males, we'll find that there are parallels elsewhere too, but just honing in on the condition here, because this is where I'm most familiar, we'll find that the issues that Muslim males who are millennials are facing have parallels to the issues that even non-Muslim 
millennial males are facing. There is there there it, there is almost an absorption of the wider issues of society here, and this is a fundamentally non-Muslim society, into the Muslim communities that live here. For instance, many young Muslim males are addicted to pornography. They are experiencing uh, addictions that span anywhere from a few years to to even over a decade. Um, and this is an unaddressed problem. It is uh, a serious problem, and it does affect their uh, intimacy later in life, and it even affects the, the their masculine prowess uh, from a health perspective. For instance, there is evidence, and this is still being studied, of uh, porn-induced erectile dysfunction. This is not a natural phenomenon whatsoever, but this will this will have tremendous impact in marriage when a, when a, a man is trying to connect with his wife. That's that that is a problem that is not only brushed under the rug. When it is addressed, it's often addressed in a way where the male is demonized as some kind of a pervert, instead of recognizing that there's a, a tremendous fitting, literally akin to a drug, being supplied at the fingertips of of young boys, you know, access, and in a society that has not adapted to providing halal outlets sufficiently. Parents also don't have, have any real standard of communication that educates their, their sons on how to deal with sexual issues and, and, and sexual pressures in the society where they're bombarded left, right, and center with excessive sexual stimuli. And visually so, because males are much more visually inclined and stimulated than females. This is well established in neurobiology, behavioral psychology, cognitive psychology, and neuroscience. That's one issue. Another issue is the the exponentially higher rate of suicide amongst millennial males versus millennial females. Now, in the Muslim community, the rates are still not where they are for, say, non-Muslims. However, the gap is, is still evident between males and females. And it's, again, just, just as it is for, for non-Muslims, uh, likewise, in the case of Muslims, it's neglected. It's direly neglected, and the actual root causes aren't studied very thoroughly. Um, they're very poorly misunderstood. They're, they're very poorly misunderstood as of now. And the question must be asked: Why is there such a severe discrepancy? There are so many different theories put forth, and we can examine those later. But the list continues. We see that even in terms of uh, marital discord and divorce rates, the Muslim community is starting to develop very strong parallels to the non-Muslim community in this regard as well. In North America, amongst non-Muslims, over 50% of divorces are initiated by women. Now, we find that the divorce rates amongst Muslims are also skyrocketing, exponentially so. And we find that, by and large, many of these divorces, at the center of their... their, uh, Dynamics, we find that, number one, women are deeply dissatisfied. Number two, the men feel deeply disenfranchised. And apart from cases uh, of uh, clear-cut abuse where the the, the man appears to be or actually is in a position of, of, of power, many of these divorces are initiated by the women as well. And in North America... If there are children involved, custody battles are very, very brutal. And the non-Muslim system does not understand how to distribute justice accordingly. In uh, in Islam, we have a far more balanced and clear-cut system because we have divine guidance. And we have the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to guide us. Now, in the non-Muslim world of North America you find that custody battles become very, very, very vile. And by and large, the, the, the men are pit against the women, with the men primarily losing out access to their children, um, even if they want, wish to be present in their lives. And many men are drawn into very vicious, very vicious custody battles where for the rest of their lives, 
not only are they unable to be active father figures, they are fundamentally manipulated financially and the, 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 the actual needs of the family, including the women, are not implemented or are, are not given, are not, are not facilitated uh, in a way that fits their fitra. So women here, <clears throat> even if they went out temporarily from a dunya perspective, they get you know, financial backing from their ex-husband uh, and this may go to the children or it may be used however she may wish. That's still not going to fulfill her need, her fitra-based needs of, of having a healthy stewarding figure to support her in raising the children. And it doesn't help that society is teaching her to vilify her ex-husband. It doesn't, it doesn't help that her, her children are being uh, estranged from their father. And it doesn't help that the pretext for this are cases of, of deadbeat fathers who, who deliberately chose to be absent from their, their children's lives and from their, their wives. We're not talking about those cases. We're talking about cases where, by and large, personal disputes between um, a husband and wife and in, in a very bloody custody battle where the, the, the man, by and large, loses out from a dunya perspective. This also affects the, 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 the condition of the women and children, even if society is telling them that, hey, this is good. It's not going to fit their fitra needs. It's going to leave them dissatisfied, uh, insecure, lonely, so on and so forth. And even if it, fits, if it feeds the nafs, the nafus of people, that's not going to keep them in a satisfied condition. So by and large, the arrangement produces a lot of brokenness and men are taking the bulk of the beating from this particular perspective in this particular case. There are plenty of issues where we can discuss uh, abuse that women face as well. Um, and it's related to uh, the, the issues that relate to men and their development, their, the negligence of men and their development. But in many of those cases, you'll notice two extremes. One is of abuse where a man has a position of tyranny, and another is, is, is not, uh, it would not be classified as, as abuse per se, but it would be chronic dissatisfaction, feelings of anxiety, feelings of insecurity with a man who has fundamentally uh, grown up in a society that encourages his emasculation both actively and passively. Now, he ends up in a particular condition because of the hands of many people, and it doesn't fulfill the, 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 the role he is supposed to play in marriage, and this negatively affects himself, his own health and well-being, and his partner, his wife. Now, <clears throat> even in these cases, young Muslim males and even non-Muslim males often have no coherent explanation guiding them. This is another major issue that they're facing. They have no kind of social roadmap that's telling them why all this is happening, except for theories emanating from uh, primarily secular liberal feminist circles that, you know, that will blame this problem on a- anything from toxic masculinity to the patriarchy. And we don't want to throw out all the, the points that they raise, but what we can definitively say is that upon examination, there's absolutely no way to... Uh, reconcile many of their theories and the Islamic ethos, socially, spiritually, or even theologically. And so uh, this issue becomes even more complicated for Muslim males who who are struggling to understand how they can take charge for their own development Mm -hmm. in a society that doesn't give them a clear uh, reconciliation between some answers developed by non-Muslims primarily and what what they know somewhat from Islam, somewhat from scholars, somewhat from their own cultures, they're, they're feeling this tension and they don't have answers. This only contributes to, the, to their anxiety. This only contributes to their isolation, you know, where they compensate by diving into a world of video games. Um, even their own friendships with other males is, is, is being stifled. Uh, <clears throat> they, they develop a sort, of, a sort of quiet depression. And if it's not quiet... It becomes very externally violent, 
you know, and you, yeah. you'll never see a, a sort of in between. Mm. You'll see guys who retreat into a world that's isolated, where they're playing video games or doing taking up strange hobbies, um, or you only notice when it gets so bad that they snap. And no one else seems to notice in the in the middle stages what's happening. So I found that guys are isolated even from each other. They don't even know how to talk to one another about these issues, let alone to their women folk. Uh, and this is a, a, a serious problem because, by and large, public spaces in North America, contrary to a lot of feminist theories that, that dictate that, you know, the default is that men have all the space, contrary to this theory, most public services and public spaces, whether it's uh, government-backed or whether, whether they're uh, afforded on university campuses, accommodate uh, female concerns and female-related issues. And as a result, you don't really have spaces that discuss males, men's issues and male issues. Now, it's great that there is work being done for women and there are spaces to address female issues, provided that these spaces are doing so in a way that actually you know, meets their needs from a fitra point of view and from an Islamic point of view. But the fact that there is, there is no such effort being done for, for males is noticeable in uh, the uh, continued isolation of, of, of brothers, young brothers, yeah. you know, taking very destructive habits. When, when someone's listening to what you're saying, uh, in order to understand really norms in reality and these generalizations that you are making somewhat in that saying that when men face certain issues and that's how, that's how they respond, uh, it's it's quite fascinating because in a world where there's uh, essentialism or this idea of generalizing roles or purposes of men and women is fought against this idea of post-essentialism. There's no ultimate grounds to really stem from. Mm -hmm. But uh, there are thousands of studies being done in psychology, something that you, of, of course, majored in, that looks at the trends and behavior of men you know, around the world and how they respond to social anxiety. And one of the biggest responses is, uh, disassociation and when you get so much uh, challenges and you know you, all of your stresses become distress you, you tend to disassociate and even with your own friends you, you don't talk for a long time because you just want to be on your own and, and that's why loneliness and depression has become such a, a massive topic but but the thing is in order to find out the truth really with a capital T you need to ask Absolutely. the right questions and uh, you know as they say that uh, that Asking the right question is really dependent on understanding the problem, as the um, Arabs say, uh, saying in Arabic is "fahmu sual nisful jawab." Right, understanding the question is half right. of the answer, and I think problematizing the way you're doing it right now is really good. And so a lot of people are saying, "Okay, you're just talking about all of the problems. We we are the solutions." But really, we really need to understand the problem fully. Uh, to understand something, you have to look at it holistically. I really do want to understand your understanding of some of the ultimate to fundamental grounds. So one of the first things is, what do you mean by masculinity and femininity? And what do you mean by fitra? What is really the fitra, the you know, dispensation of masculinity and femininity from your perspective? Okay, excellent points. Excellent points. And uh, I appreciate that you have the insight to recognize, as you've put very eloquently, the need to understand the problem soundly. It's a very, very complex topic when one wishes to build a framework that establishes a positive case for masculinity, femininity, and then tries to connect these back to the fitra. And I think this is where we need to consult our our traditional scholars, the shuyuk, um, who have the tools to help answer this question, but they may not always be uh, exposed to contemporary social problems. And this is where what I try to do is I try to bridge that gap by connecting with traditional scholars who I know have the correct tools, but may need assistance in terms of understanding current ground realities based on you know, my experience in academia, my experience in social activism, community activism, and actually engaging the various different groups that are developing uh, based on the influence of various ideologies. So when we look at the world of 
different gender theories. You have so many different competing models. You even have uh, something known as the manosphere developing now as a sort of pushback to decades of um, liberal feminist and liberal progressive developments that have shaped a certain narrative. And not just liberal feminists, but there are different you know, schools of thought uh, within, within uh, feminism, and some have more traction on the ground than others. Some, some are simply academic and have very little influence on the actual thinking of mainstream society, especially an, an under 30 generation. So those when I when I when I refer to feminism from now on, by and large, I'm going to be referring to the brands that have had the greatest impact on the ground in North America amongst the youth. And I'm not necessarily speaking about, um, you know, different schools of thought, theorists who someone would only be exposed to if they studied in academia. Right. Because I want to be nuanced as any any subject deserves to be treated intellectually, honestly. So given that, when we, we look at the world of the manosphere, for instance, and how it seeks to push back by uh, developing various circles, each with their own sort of underlying social philosophy on what constitutes manhood and, and womanhood and successful relationships, we find that a lot of Muslim men today if they even begin to look for answers, they, they're drawn to this area because they don't find answers from Muslim, the Muslim community. They, they're not finding any attention from an even from an orthodox traditional perspective that's defining to them what is the role of a wali, a Muslim man who becomes a wali in his marriage, in his household. They're not finding answers that are relevant to the the social issues that they're facing. You know where. Society is, is, is actively and passively trying to emasculate them, uh, conflate their genders with that of women, that there are no functional differences and there aren't, e- there aren't even differences, you know, apparently when it comes to roles, even though this doesn't make sense from many different perspectives. For instance, there aren't, there aren't differences. However, we find that do, uh, the theory, as the theory goes, because of patriarchal structures, men have for, for, for centuries been conditioned to be different. And, and yet these, these aren't intrinsic differences. They're just conditioned differences. But this ignores, as you mentioned, so many studies, so many recurrent studies in, in neuroscience, neurobiology, clinical psychology, even in, 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 in uh, endocrinology that clearly demonstrates not only biological differences between males and females, but psychosocial ones that stem from biological differences. So we look at the world, we, we process the natural world, and we have to do so very carefully because when we study science, we need to remember that science can be done in different ways. You can do science while holding to fundamentally flawed philosophical uh, frameworks like scientism where you uh, disregard the metaphysical. And that's, that's not going to cut it for Muslims. You know, it would involve kufr. So as a Muslim, we have to, we have to really see uh, science almost as, as, the, as the study of the sunnah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, patterns that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wills. And we can't disregard these patterns because they are by the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And there's divine wisdom and mercy in these patterns. We also need to consult our actual tradition and the scholars to, de- to, to, to determine actually established definitions, you know, whether they're legal categories or simply uh, accepted observations of the, of the sunnah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We have legal categories as they relate to males and females, men and women, in various capacities. For example, what is the uh, right of a husband over his wife? What what are the rights of, of a uh, uh, wife over his husband over her husband and why are they different right so what are the rights of, of a husband over his wife and what are the rights of a wife over her husband what about what are the duties of fatherhood what about what are the uh, duties of motherhood and so these are legal categories that have gendered distinctions 
But then there are plenty of uh, there's plenty of source material in our deen that also also looks at the at the Sunnah of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. We look at Imam Al Ghazali's book of marriage. He himself establishes very clearly that the husband has to be a stewarding figure. He has to do he has to be a stewarding figure who is capable of doing tarbiyah upon his entire family, including his wife. Why is that? Right? These are questions that have to be asked. Is there a correlation between this observation of, of a husband's ability to do tarbiyah upon his entire family as, as a as a leader leadership oriented figure? And what we find in neurobiology and the cognitive and behavioral sciences, we have to look at those correlations. And I believe that they do exist, right? And so I believe that there, there is most certainly a correlation. I believe that when we study uh, personality psychology and we look at the fact that, let's look at big five personality trait distribution. We find that men repeatedly score higher when it comes to measures of assertiveness. And this continues to be the case on average, even in an age where there is plenty of social programming that promotes more aggressiveness on the part of women. And when I say aggressiveness, I'm talking more about specifically in the context of negotiating, asserting, setting boundaries within various social structures, whether it's at work, whether it's setting up a business, uh, whether it's a, a, a teaching style, right? And we find that when men are less aggressive, women, have, women become more aggressive. And yet that correlates with higher levels of anxiety. Whereas when women become less aggressive, it's usually because men are scoring higher in assertiveness. And yet that doesn't, that doesn't correlate with higher, higher measures of anxiety in the men. And this is a very interesting finding. And to, what I believe is that this means that a man is designed to burden the highest loads of leadership and he measures like assertiveness manifest in men not only at a higher frequency and a more apparent degree but even distinctly we find that men are when they're assertive they're, they are assertive in a more, much more straightforward and direct way and they can do this in a more sustained manner over a longer period of time with fewer repercussions yes. to their mental health. We also don't now, want to confuse between assertiveness and aggressiveness. Perhaps you can define assertiveness as well. Okay, sure, sure. So when I say aggressive, I, yeah, that can become very misleading. So when I say aggressive, I simply mean uh, I, I'm using it synonymously with uh, assertiveness, but it could be interpreted very differently. Assertiveness simply means in this context – the ability uh, or the, the the capacity and ability to enforce your expectations, okay? Directly enforce your expectations, negotiate them, um, establish them, etc. And we find that in this measure, men rep- repeatedly score higher and across multiple societies and cultures. Now, this is a very interesting phenomenon and this this correlates very smoothly with the fact that men have to be protectors and providers protectors and maintainers over women and their families they also have to they're they're also the ones who are obliged to actually defend the muslim lands so it makes perfect sense that they they have been equipped by the grace of and, and, and mercy of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with the greatest ability to establish boundaries assert their expectations Right, conflict in, in in the heat of conflict, they, they, they have the greatest ability to assert their expectations, etc. Because if they didn't have this ability, this capacity or ability, they would they would be able to fulfill this duty that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has given them. Right? Okay. When I say capacity, by the way, I mean potential, and ability is simply the realized, the actual realized potential. So potential capacity means how much of a particular function you can fulfill in theory based on you know your design uh, and ability here means how much you've actually been able to do based on your training mm-hmm. right your training or your development okay. so mm-hmm. both men and women have the capacity to be assertive but by and large the data shows that men have on average a higher capacity right so this is interesting, and, and, and we can we can see the, the, that other other uh, 
trends are also very smoothly connected to what we find in the tradition. Women score higher in agreeableness. And this is very convenient if you believe that women have a natural fitra-oriented capacity to be more merciful, more nurturing. And we find that in the deen, there are direct references in our tradition to the idea that women are, based on even their fitra, suited to be merciful and nurturing, such that some, uh, I believe, uh, in some courts, it was preferred for there to be a female uh, the position of judge. Yeah, there were cases where women were actually preferred to be judges because they would judge m- mercifully. And in, the, in those particular cases, that was what was uh, preferred. So given that this exists in our tradition, we can find that there's a correlation between this data, data set and phenomenon that we find even in our tradition. So in, in my estimation, I don't think any of this is a coincidence. I don't think any of this is the result of uh, extensive biases because many of these studies that I'm referring to were actually done by liberals. And that's very interesting. Other studies in the Netherlands that study what happens when you try to make a study more egalitarian and they find that differences between gendered behavior actually increase were also done by liberals. So the idea that these liberals were biased in such a way that they get results that, you know, would, would, would conflict with their own views is unlikely. And then the fact that we find in our own tradition references to uh, gendered behavioral patterns, you know, where men are seen a certain way and women are seen a certain way. That clearly can't be the result of simply bias or biases when we find grounding in, actual, in the actual sacred texts in the Hadith and in the Qur'an, so, uh, and then in, in authoritative scholarship. So I believe that when we want to actually solve these social problems that we find growing between men and women and within, within the genders themselves, we have to be honest about reality. And a part of that means not over-essentializing, but also not avoiding actual real-world patterns mm-hmm. that very well constitute the sunnah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You yep. can oppress people by that, by doing that too. People Absolutely. think that the only way you can oppress is by, you know, over-essentializing. But you can oppress by denying facts as well. In fact, most of the oppression that's being done today is by denying denial of facts, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and over-essentializing would be a denial of a fact. But denying actual patterns is also denial of facts. You know, if you deny that a boy learns differently than a girl and you try to teach the boy the same way as the girl and you see that he's, he's more rambunctious and then you, you think that, oh, there must be something wrong with him, so let's prescribe him with ADHD medication. That's going to cause oppression in the long run on, that, on, on boys. And if you think girls have to be just like boys and they have to they have, to have the exact same uh, function as, 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 as their male counterparts throughout life, that's going to cause tremendous anxiety in girls and, 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 and levels of depression will rise. Um, so these, these, will, these are forces, for, or, sorry, these are forms of injustices upon them. And so I believe that, as you asked originally, males and females, in my estimation, are really manifestations of Jamal and Jalal in different proportions, you know? beauty and majesty. And and I believe males, by and large, have higher proportions of Jalal than Jamal. And women have higher proportions of Jamal over Jalal. Beauty over, you know, the, 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 the more majestic yes. uh, qualities. And this is common sense, you know, to generations of old. But unfortunately, today it's become very, very, very confusing. And the data supports this model. You know, five-factor personality psychology supports this, this, this philosophical outlook this, and also a spiritual outlook on, on men and women. Yeah. Uh, neurobiology does. 
mm-hmm. uh, brain, differences in brain structure do. The fact that men have testosterone and this affects their behavior significantly, you know, also correlates with this with this understanding of Jamal and Jalal. Mm-hmm. So, I think that we need to look at the obvious trends, you know, that have been known for centuries. But we should be nuanced and make sure that we don't over-essentialize and we don't um, come up with conclusions like, oh, therefore, uh, women can't do martial arts. Okay, yeah, absolutely. I think there's a distinction that needs to be made when it comes to capacity and ability like you've made very well. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that the purpose of a woman is based on the, the, the capacity, you know, the ability um, because the purpose and the role is very different. Oftentimes when you ask what's the role of a woman or Muslim woman, then you know, to, one of the answers is to bear children, which is quite uh, erroneous because the purpose of a man and lady is the same as Muslims. We are you know, created to know Allah before we die. And uh, children is a strong path to Allah in the same way that uh, jihad for men is a strong path to Allah as well. Now, the, now the issue, however, is that w- when we over-essentialize, as, as you mentioned, we, we limit women to certain capacities based on that. And, and it would be very sensible to say, would a, 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 a lady, a female, go into battle with a strong man and she's clearly um, undercapacitated to defeat him? Now, that would be uh, ridiculous. But you still Absolutely. find examples of that even among the Sahabiyat, Nusayba, she fought in battle. So it's almost like we can't, you, can't, you can't limit a person based on their gender because this particular sunnah of Allah created in that, uh, that capacity because they are a lady. But there are intersectionality and all of the theories that, you know, even some of them that are problematic, there's still a fundamental truth in that, that we are component, com, you know, comprised of so many different aspects. If you are a woman and you have a particular quality, which is courage or bravery, which is also um, you know, something that's not in the majority of, of human beings, it doesn't stop you from doing certain things, even though it might not be um, your greatest capacity from your perspective as a woman. Uh, such as bravery and fighting, etc., and as you mentioned, MMA. Mm, it's just such a yeah. complicated topic, and I think uh, I went into this interview talking to you now that thinking hopefully we can answer you know, a great question, or a, few, a few great questions, but I think we'll probably need a series to really look at uh, yeah, you know, the traditional absolutely. understanding of, of, of gender uh, roles and purposes and all of those things. Uh, but it's been really great. It's, it's been really uh, great to understand your perspective on that, um, and also, as you say, as, as you're saying, a traditional understanding uh, of it as well, uh, which can often be misunderstood. Sure. I just want to uh, also re- really quickly comment on the idea that there are exceptions. We know that, you know, we have fiqh uh, and usul, usul even you know prior to fiqh, to guide us in understanding how to address questions about human decision-making. You know, what if there's a woman who can fight exceptionally well? Should she be allowed to fight in the battlefield? You know, that, that would be fundamentally a fiqh question because the, even that incident of uh, Sayyidina Nusayba radiallahu anha, uh, there were other women who wanted to go and they thought that they could because she did. And when they did it, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam was visibly displeased with them. Yes, absolutely. The they went. So it's like, you know, we have to be careful of using exceptions to establish the norm, and we also have to we also have to be nuanced enough to not neglect exceptions because of the norm. And uh, fiqh will guide us in in this process. Uh, I also wanted to mention that everything that I've mentioned shouldn't be framed in a way that pits the genders against each other. Because as I mentioned initially, um, the 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 emasculation of males affects females disastrously you know i've spoken to so many different families where the women folk have have been upset at least or outright outright exhausted because the men in their families or the the males in their families simply weren't competent stewards and they didn't make them feel safe they didn't make them feel secure financially they didn't make them feel understood led emotionally and spiritually or even physically tapped into and uh, understood for their needs and and, and then their holistic functioning and this this resulted in feelings of you know disconnection depression 
And many of these women, were, it was as if they weren't even aware of what was actually possible for them to feel if they had an actual man in their life, a man who had social training aligned with their Islamic responsibilities and to fulfill those. So by and large, this mission that I'm trying to devote myself to is, is, is for society at large. You can have as many female-dominated spaces for yes. female-oriented issues, but those will, those will not provide long-term solutions if they neglect the fundamental form and function of human relationships, including with men. Yeah. Because those will just be band-aid solutions. You know, it's like you have this deep tumor growing. Okay, here's what you can do to sort of feel better in the moment. But unless you deal with that tumor, which requires that you look at the condition of men, you're not going to solve any of those problems. Focus 180, is that focused only in um, Ontario or Toronto in Canada? Or is there a way for people to get connected to you and to be part of the program you know, across the globe? Absolutely, absolutely. I have three services right now that are uh, running. And one of them is called 180 Principles. And the second one is called 180 Fitness. And the third one is called 180 MMA. 180 Principles is a psychosocial competence training program that informally provides elements of you know, various counseling models, but really seeks to develop a curriculum that men from all around the world can follow in a case by, on a case-by-case case basis that suits their individual contexts and develop sound masculinity and masculine balance that will not only improve their own well-being, but it will improve the condition of all their relationships and the way they lead their lives holistically. This is a program that I offer remotely across the world. I have clients in Australia, the UK, Somaliland, Bangladesh, uh, the United States, and even in Trinidad and, and Tobago. So this is a program that if brothers are interested in, they can sign up for. Uh, they can reach out to me through my Facebook page, which is simply focus-180. And I'm uh, currently having my website built. Inshallah, that will be done within a week uh, with Allah's help. And the way these progr this program works is if it's remotely being done, there are 8, 10, or 12 modules and appointments that they can register for. And each of them involves real-time uh, video conference calls with me that span one hour and 15 minutes. And I walk them through my entire curriculum. I build their case history to understand their context, their, their relationships, for, for instance, and the condition of those relationships, their condition physically uh, and mentally, and so, on and, so, and so on and so forth. And then we apply the curriculum to deal with their actual problems and develop solutions suited for them and their families. I assign mm -hmm. one of my fitness coaches as a pocket coach as well, and they are responsible for their physical well-being. And they, they, they develop meal plans and fitness programs and an accountability measure so that the, the client is not only uh, being engaged and held accountable to the program, but they're being pushed to grow and to learn to take charge for their own development. I assign homework as well, where every single week they have to do journal entries, almost like a psycho, psychosocial awareness building activity where they have to, they have to uh, write journal articles based on a topic that I assign. And it requires that they, they, they get really personal. They make personal connections based on their own thoughts, feelings, and reactions to what we've discussed. And they share those in, in journal form with increasing vulnerability and candidness. Yeah. And then we take these up. So it's, a, it's an intensive program, but it's open to anyone who's willing to really take a, a hard look at themselves and where they stand, inshallah. And I'm, I'm there for them. And, and any brother who wants, they can reach out to me. Mm -hmm. um, locally, I, I hold workshops. Uh, Rajula uh, workshops are the uh, big thing that I'm planning now. And... Interesting, a lot of women are very fascinated by them because they, they understand, they can sense the lack of masculine balance, you know. Men, men have either become, yes. you know, too inflexibly stone cold 
Yes. Or they're hypersensitive and lack of backbone. Mm. And yeah. this, they, they oscillate between these extremes. One extreme bound, you know, pushes them to the other and back and forth. And you know, women can pick up on this as as as, as very sensual beings. They can pick up on this. They may not be able to put their finger on what it is, but they can sense something is deeply wrong. So when they find out that these programs are available, they usually are very intrigued. Mm-hmm. Well, what's really interesting, uh, you know, the, this idea of a synthesis between, um, you know, fixing the problems of the world when it comes to gender through a not only um, empowerment, you know, in a very metaphorical sense for women, um, because that's really one of the fundamental problems that they see is that men have had the power, so women need to get more power in order to, you know, uh, create a balance between the gender roles and in in doing so, disempower certain masculine traits. And if there was, you know, a lack of mm-hmm. traditional masculinity, there'd be more, um, you know, equality between the genders. Um, that's really a thesis which is radical. And, uh, you know, the antithesis to that should re- require something that is... Uh, is also radical, but n- not that strips away masculinity completely, emasculates people. And what I like to call, and you know, my teachers call radical traditionalism, that you're creating, you're putting tradition in there, which shouldn't be radical at all, but you're presenting it as a radical solution because you need some sort of radical solutions in the world that we have today, creating a synthesis, which uh, hopefully, you know, if it doesn't change anything in the short term, as, at least help you perceive it, there will be effects when it comes to you know long-term effects and the next generation is really understanding what it means to be a male in terms of your purpose and your role. Shukran so much, uh, Sidi Fahim. Uh, that's Fahim Farooq. Of course, you can find him on social media as well and uh, uh, check him out. And um, it's, it's really great work. All the best. We'll uh, speak to you again, inshallah. Jazakumallah My pleasure. Thank you so much, Sidi Yassin. I really appreciate it. And inshallah, I look forward to talking to you again in the future. From Cape Town, this is the voice of the Cape, 91.3 FM.